Well, it's, how many of you met somebody new? Oh, got to do it again next week to meet everybody. That's great. For those of you watching uh, online, uh, yes, it's pouring rain here in Southern California, and this is great weather to preach about complaining. You know, some people just have the gift of complaining. Have you heard of that? It's just an art for them. Kind of a cheery writer, Voltaire, he said this, we're born crying, we live complaining, and we die disappointed. Let's just close in prayer, shall we, on that thought? Uh, Will Rogers said, the first people to boo the play are the people with the free tickets. In other words, it's the people that get the free things in life that seem to complain the most. He said, complaining about life is like complaining about the shape of the pyramids. That's what they are. We take a look of all these things that we go through life and sometimes silence is the best. I don't know if you've ever been on a silent retreat. It's funny how we hide behind our words a lot. I'm reminded of the young uh, man that entered the monastery and he, they took a vow of silence for a whole year. And on January, you're allowed to say two words. That was it. So he went the first year and he came in. The Monsignor said, uh, son, what would you like to say? And he said, bed hard. So he said, all right. So I went back to the next year of science. It came, came around. Next year, the Monsignor said, what would you like to say with your two words this year? He said, food lousy. So I went back to another year, a third year. He came in and the Monsignor saw him. He said, well, what are you going to say this year? He said, I quit. And the Monsignor said, well, you might as well. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here the whole time. When you take a look at complaining, and it's interesting this last week in trying to drill down into the psychology of complaining, and not a lot about it. But when you and I get into these tough desert wilderness experience, and I don't mean you've had a bad hair day, I mean the tough chapters of life. It is so easy to vent, and we need to. We need to express our frustration, even bewilderment at life. Some of the best people just keep getting hammered and hammered and hammered. God wants that. What God stops is when we go from processing to accusing God. That's what complaint means. It's a legal term to bring an accusation against God that he has failed us and he hasn't kept his word. And we see in the children of Israel when they come to this tough desert experience, there were 10 plagues, remember, to get them out of Egypt? Well, there will be 10 complaints from the children of Israel as they travel through the wilderness. And what we find out is when you get to that chapter, and I do, three organs of our body are the most important things to handle when we come to the desert. Your looker, your talker, and your wonter. Your eyes, your mouth, and your heart. The perspective you and I bring on our expectations of life and what we say about that to others and to ourselves not only reflects our heart, it literally directs the steps of our path that we move ahead. And God, as I said, wants us to come to him when we're frustrated. But when we accuse God, why that is so self-condemning is we separate ourselves from God. And ironically, the very answers that we're looking for, we shut off into our life. It takes the same amount of calories, remember this, to complain as it does to trust. It takes the same amount of effort to be miserable as it does to be happy. And God calls us and says, choose life. It's the better way. It's not just passive resignation. Passive resignation is where you go, what can I do about it anyway? I'm not gonna complain, but you've just quit. No, 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 no. This is very active trusting. 
And as the children of Israel move away from God because they miss stuff, the Son of God runs to the Father's heart is how he gets him through that. If you got your Bible, let's turn back and take a look at this a little closer. Numbers, the 11th chapter, page 113. Our eyes and our perspective of when we're in the desert. I remember God's presence, the tabernacle. He's a holy God, and how do you get there? The Pentateuch, the five books, the five scrolls of Moses, probably the Hexateuch, probably Joshua's part of that as well. That it shows Genesis, God creates, and he calls Abraham, and he makes his promise, and it's a story of his family. Exodus, God delivers them out of Egypt. Leviticus says, how can a sinful people approach a holy God, a perfect God who is out there? And you go by the sacrifices, you approach him, and you walk with him by the feasts. But now the book of Numbers is that could, should be this great story of the conquering the promised land, but it doesn't happen. Verse 1. Now when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, pause, they had a lot to complain about. These guys are out in the desert. They're walking through very dangerous situations. And the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire stopped. So that place was called Taberah, meaning burning, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. Now, they're going on a long journey. It should only take about 20 days for the walk. It'll take them 40 years. And why did it take Moses 40 years? Like they said, because even back then, men didn't stop and ask for directions. No, that's not why. Because they turned God down. We have a map here to remind us of this trek they make. When they leave the city of Ramses and they cut across and they cross over, and they come down into the Sinai, they will stay at Sinai around a year, and then they will head back up. They'll head out here, they'll say no to God. When the, we'll find out in a couple of weeks when the spies turn back, 10 of 12 people say we can't do it. And so for the next 40 years, God leads them around this wilderness, waiting for them to die so the next generation can inherit it. Now what's interesting is this total juxtaposition between Moses, who's told his in-law, Hobab, who's a Midianite, who are better ones who know how to get through this desert, come show us how to get through here. He's going, God is gonna give us a great land. The people who go from the good land that God's gonna give them, the promise, to longing about the past, how much better it was. Look at this in verse four. The rabble among them, isn't that a great word? And it's a word probably that means it was the the foreigners, not the children of Israel that were traveling with them. Rabble, that's what my mother-in-law used to call me. Among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again, saying, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing but this manna to look at. Mana, ma is what? Ma ze is what is it? Mana means what is it? It was this kind of flaky bread. No one really knows how God used in nature to provide this for him, but it's the abundance. There have been scholars and people trying to guess what it was, but they ate it. Now they're going, oh my goodness, remember the buffets we had back in prison? Do you remember that? We had three hots and a cot. Was that great or what? When we have such selective memory of the past, we start to complain about God in the present and it costs us our future. Any addiction 
always sacrifices greater joy for the moment. There's an addiction to complaining that some people have. And this is not, again, just processing or frustrating because it's rainy or the traffic's bad or the food's cold that they serve you. No, no. This is the sense of this embitterness that life has let me down and God, you're supposed to be running things. That cuts us off from this very blessing. Now there's this gonna be this series of events. Notice the fire starts on the outside of the camp. And so they go to Moses and Moses prays on their behalf and it stops. The role you play in your family and your friend's life do not ever forget this. When they're complaining, rather than just avoiding them, pray for them. Pray on their behalf. God will use you powerfully in their life. God points out to us our friends' problems, not so for our amusement, but so that we can intercede on their behalf. Or with our family, or even within our spiritual family, within the small groups as you're getting together and sharing and you're finding out people going through stuff. And that's the great thing about a small group. Because people love you and care about you, and other people are always wackier than you are. And you can go home saying, well, at least I'm not like them. You know, that's a really a great thing. And, and as we come together and start to pray and intercede on behalf of each other, God releases this. So they're saying that we want they were slaves. They kind of forgot that. The Egyptians were hardly nice to them. Do we ever do that with our past? Oh, it was so much better. Let me tell you something, and I love aging. I really do. Other, like I told you, other than looking and feeling horrible, it's great. <laughs> Age 56, I've told you before, uh, when you bend over tying your shoe, you think, is there anything else I need as long as I'm down here, you know, uh, got the effort going on here. But the selective memory to me is a crack up because we bundle our memories the way we want. I've told you many times in the last 10 years of brain mapping, we've discovered God gave us two brains, not a left and right, but a thinking brain and a feeling brain. You have so many neurons in your skull right now in that brain. You have more connections than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy, over a trillion connections. And your thinking brain is incredibly intelligent. Your feeling brain is incredibly sloppy, but it's very fast. That's why when I stepped up here, and uh, Enoch invited me up, that you went through two things. You looked at me and you said, do I recognize that little stumpy guy? Yeah, I know that guy, that's pastor. But then you have a second memory bundle that comes in front of that, in front of that, that tells you what do you feel about me before I come up? And obviously God designed this in the animal world so you know whether do I attack this thing, do I run from it, do I eat it, do I play with it? And so you got this memory bundle, why does God tell us through Paul and Ephesians, do not let the sun go down upon your anger and give no opportunity to the evil one. Because the more you harbor anger and the more you bundle that and you sleep on it, the more it influences and evil can get you off track so easy because you start broad brushing everything. Now if you don't express frustration, you just hold it in all the time, you're gonna be depressed because you lose a sense of control in that. So you have, and only God dwells in reality, the rest of us dwell in our perceptions of reality. And what goes on on the outside? Sometimes she's Mrs. Smile on the outside, but she's Mrs. Ulcers on the inside because she's never had a chance just to be able to express the pain and hurt and sorrow in her life. It's good to get this out. Had a mother tell me her uh, little daughter, she gave her time out. She said, all right, she's running around crazy. It goes, all right, does it? you sit 
you sit in the corner and you sit there for time out. She said her daughter said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still running around. <laughs> Smart girl. <laughs> She's just being honest of what we all feel. And sometimes we go, well, I may be on the outside, but on the inside, things are going on. So it's good. I don't want you to misunderstand me to express frustration. The thing is, the moment you express it, you intensify it. You can only feel it the moment. You don't feel the past. And when you express an emotion, it intensifies. When you tell somebody, I love you, you feel more love at that moment. When you say, I'm afraid, you're a little more flipped out. When you say, I'm ticked, at that moment, if you take your pulse, you're a little angrier. That's why God says, praise me. Even when you don't feel like it, you praise me. And as we're singing together and praising the Lord, you start to feel more trust in that sense. Because that's how God wired us. But when we get to this place of where we start just all the time using our memory cards, what the children of Israel are doing here, then God has to step in. And again, only God dwells in reality. We all have our perceptions. Isn't it funny how we treat each other? Sometimes the other person doesn't even know that You've been offended by them or been hurt by them. You gotta be able to share that. I, uh, early on in our marriage, I remember uh, Carolyn has these vivid dreams. I, I just don't dream. I'm just kind of a dumb sleeper. You know, just kind of in a coma. But, but I remember one time that she was really kind of mad at me one day and I thought, of course I have the gift of offending. I didn't know if I'd exercise my gift or not and said, uh, what is that? And she said, yeah. I dreamed about you last night. You were flirting someone else. So I went to bed and I tried to dream to see what I was doing, to see whether it was worth being punished or not, but I couldn't do that. But we do those kind of things, don't we? We, have, we build these little images of each other. Dr. Robin Kowalski of Harvard University has done a study on the psychology of complaining. And he said there's two thresholds. There's a dissatisfaction threshold and then there's a complaining threshold to kick both those. A dissatisfaction threshold is your expectations on life of what it should be. And this is what's so wild about humanity. We just had Pone Raj, he's down right now, preaching down at the bridge who was our partner from North India, the poorest province in North India. I mean, our time's over there with them. My goodness, these people are going through such suffering. He's baptized in the last 15 years or so, 20 years. All, 100,000 people. I don't mean they've raised their hand at a stadium. I and mean, I've gone into these villages. He baptizes them and they get into these small groups. I had such a wonderful time over there. Uh, it's also, I have never had food that hot in my entire life. <laughs> One meal I actually saw Jesus. I was in the middle of it there. But, <laughs> but you know what his expectations on life are? I'm a, he's so positive stuff and his life is horribly difficult. And he's praising the Lord, why? He's got it dialed to this is what life is. You and I, when we, one kind of expression is called cathartic complaining. Get it off our chest. Told you when I was back in Detroit, uh, 38 of my elders, they all worked for the big three auto company. One of them, his job was responsible for complaint departments for Ford Motor Company. He was fairly me medicated, but he had this job and <laughs> He said what you went around telling all these dealerships how you handle complaints is you let the person complain. And you don't say, well, that's not a problem. Or you should have seen the last one was a lot worse than that. You let him what he calls climb anger mountain. You let him get that out. And when they stop, sometimes they're just getting their breath and they take off again. 
rather than getting defensive. And for you and I, when people are complaining about us, it's good just to listen. And the three magic words are not I love you, it's I was wrong, I am sorry, can I help? A true apology in that sense of listening to it doesn't mean that you agree but you're sympathizing in that. But sometimes just getting it off our chest and our expectations. When we were over in Africa for two weeks, oh my goodness, I mean life is so tough in the Congo there. And when I come back to the US last week, I said I'm never gonna complain about anything. I was just hugging people. I was kissing the floor, it's so clean, you know, just loving things. By Friday, I'm in such a bad mood about the 405. Like, how, how can there be a God of love? How can there really be? And I'm amazed at how fast my expectations go back that life should be perfect. Cathartic complaining. Another thing, though, is self-presentation and complaining. We mimic and imitate other people's criticisms. If you go and see a movie and you liked it and the people coming out go, I hate this stupid movie. I didn't like that movie either. We were, Karen and I were in France with this couple and they were taking us to these really nice restaurants and then he was complaining about the food and everything. I thought it was great. And then he found out that it was awarded one of the Michelin stars for one of the best restaurants in France. He loved the food. It was the best thing he'd ever seen. We do that. There's also face saving. When sometimes when people criticize us, we criticize them back to balance it out. I remember telling our kids one time, go clean your rooms. And they clean, I go, that's not a clean room, clean your room. You guys don't know how to clean your room. And I remember one of them said, oh yeah, well you're fat. Well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> what does my being fat have to do with the room or anything? Well, you're balancing it out. Well, we stink at cleaning, well you stink at living. I just wanna point that out. <laughs> so we get into those kind of complaining. But the biggest one is the problem is with the children of Israel here is the sense of control of our environment. We complain because we think somehow that gives us control of it. And as psychology will tell you, saying becomes believing. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart was what leads to salvation. Now this is not Hinduism where we make reality out of our words, but what we say has stunning power on our heads and our hearts. And when we say I'm upset, good. When we say God, I don't get it, good. When we say Lord, I need some help, I need a friend, good. When we say, God, you blew it, bad. Because we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of what we're longing for. And God says, you come to me in your frustration and bring it to me. It's interesting that they estimate that 50% of happiness in people they've studied around the world, Richard Easterline of SC and Sankoff Vandam from India, 50% is genetic. Some people have a genetic set point, they're happy. Have you met these people? They're just kind of happy people. Uh, remember Gary Larson, the cartoons? One of my favorite was there was a guy in hell and there's a demon talking to another demon and there's all these miserable people and there's one guy with a weird world kind of whistling and he's all happy and the one demon said to the other, we're not getting through to that guy. <laughs> you know, he's just kind of happy in hell, you know. That, and some people kind of have that set point that they're just happy and it's genetic. It's not because they're good people, they're just that way. 10% are external factors, 40% has to do with your head. 40%. And it's ironic what they point out, the things that don't make us happy, which are wealth and fame, are what we sacrifice to things that do make us happy. Relationships, health, and our faith. This is coming from secular studies. At some point, if you're so poor you don't have food, money does help. 
when you're starving to death, you're not happy. If you can't get medicine or health care, you're not happy. But then at some point, it becomes a diminishing return. The more you make, the less happy we become. But we still don't buy that. After the Great Recession, right now in the year 2011, Americans are twice as wealthy as a generation ago. And Americans are twice as unhappy as a generation ago. Do the math. Because money in itself and fame in itself never makes us happy, even though we become addicted to it. If I was going to ask you if two things were to happen to you this week, how happy would you be a year from now? Either win the lotto or be in an auto accident and become a paraplegic. Dr. Daniel Gilbert from Harvard School of Psychiatry did this test. And one year later, the people that had won the lotto and the people who had lost their limbs, either some of these young guys coming back from Afghanistan or Iraq or in accidents, were the same amount of happy. Because the lotto didn't bring all the answers they thought they would and life wasn't as miserable as they thought without their legs. This incredible way God has allowed us to be able to adapt to things. And the difference for us as Christians is realizing the more we please the Lord, the more the things we want come into our life. We are so bad at knowing what makes us happy. And so God calls us to be able to come and to trust him. And so in verse 16, look at this, chapter 11. So the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel whom you know to be elders of the people. Offer them and bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their place with you. I will come down and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not bear it all by yourself. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wailed in the hearing of the Lord saying, if only we had meat to eat. Surely it's better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat it one day or two or five or 10 or 20, but a month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed be saying, why do we ever leave Egypt? So God seems to be in kind of a bad mood right there, doesn't he? <laughs> God feels, you and I forget that. He feels, he feels more than you and I feel. The higher the creature, the more it feels. A sea slug doesn't feel what a fish feels, and a fish doesn't feel what a puppy feels, and a puppy doesn't feel what a chimp feels, and a chimp doesn't feel what you and I feel, and you and I don't feel what God feels. And as he is frustrated with them, saying, you'll want meat, you're gonna get meat. And just like he did in Exodus, and there are parallel events, he brings in the second month, which we know from Ornithology is when some of these migrating quails, and he uses this, this incredible wind to blow in, and they have so much meat that they do get tired of it. And then they cry out because they want variety. The people complain, God provides, the people adjust. The people complain, God provides, the people adjust. You and I very often go through the same trials in life, not because we haven't learned them but because of what we become through them. And this whole concept of remembering, and it is tough, and when you're in that dark hour of the soul, as the early fathers called it, so dark. You can't even remember not only being happy with the Lord, you don't know if you'll ever be able to trust him again. 
and it's so quiet and life just gets harder and harder. Elijah had that after defeating the prophets of Baal, afraid of Jezebel. John the Baptist sends the Jesus and saying, the one whom he baptized and heard the father say, this is my beloved son. He says, are you the one we should look for because he's not acting like the way the Messiah should act? Peter, when Jesus doesn't fight back and he's arrested, denies three times, I even knew the man. And it's, we have fellow company in these dark moments. But rather than complaining and running away from God, we run to him and say, Lord, I don't get it. But as Job said, even though he slays me, I'm gonna trust him. Peter would say, why are you so weirded out, surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you to test your faith more precious than gold? Jesus, Jesus as he gathers in this room of Gethsemane of olive groves, it means the oil press, as he is the olive press, as he is being crushed under the weight. And Jesus, who did not want to go to the cross physically, the Phoenicians originally came up with crucifixion, but the Romans took it up a level. The Romans looked at a way of how to maximize pain without you dying on them. They tried boiling people, but they died from shock. They tried skinning them alive, but they died from fluid loss. So they came up with crucifixion. And as they crucified you on the cross, and they would do this by the hundreds on the Appian Way, and there was a statement, don't mess with Rome. Jesus did not want to die that way. He was fully God, but he was fully a man. But what no film will ever capture, what no preacher, what no book can ever convey, he who knew no sin, was about to become the sin of the world. He had never done anything, but his joy was to honor the Father and to love others and to heal them and bless them. And as he falls on his knees at 33, right before the next day, and he says, Abba, I have done everything you have ever asked. One thing, one thing I'm asking of you, God, Take this cup away. And three times God said, no. 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 This must be endured. This can be endured, my son. There's no other way. I will take you through this. And even as he hangs on the cross and it says that darkness covered the world for three hours because God said nobody sees my boy die like that. And when he screamed it is finished. What did he love so much God that he would ask his son to do that? And it's you and it's me. And if you can look at that and look at this cross and say, I can't trust him, I don't get it. If you can go through what we go through, and I'm not making little of what we have, and accuse God of not being trustworthy, you haven't felt those arms around you enough. All things work together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul says, I consider this present suffering and that boy knew suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Casting all your burdens on him for he cares for you. Tell him, 
Jesus said, all those who are tired and heavy laden, come to me. Take my yoke and learn from me. My burden is light and my yoke fits and you will find rest for your souls. It takes the same amount of effort to be miserable as it does to be joyful. It takes the same amount of calories to say, God, I trust you even when I don't get it, as it does to say, I want to be miserable and complain for a little bit longer. Rejoice in the Lord always. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you that we don't have to play games with you and God in this very dark world with so much sorrow and injustice and evil, God. God, it is a sad, broken place, but we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have not abandoned this place or us. That God, you are the victorious, risen Christ's Father and you are leading him and his church triumphant to go and to give the good news of Christ, to help the poor, to look forward to the things that you are doing. And God, I know that while you have us in this city at this time, I pray if there are any in this room that you have not released yourself and you have all these grudges and bitterness against God in life, you can let them go right now. Not magically, but supernaturally. Say, Lord, would you wash over me? I believe you hung on that cross and you died for me. I take all I know of me and I give it to all I know of you, Lord. Come and take over my life and right now you'll begin a relationship forever. Thank you, Lord, for understanding that we're flesh and we're knuckleheads and that we like to throw dirt in the air and complain. But thank you, God, you never let us get away with it because you hold us in the very palm of your hand and you remind us of your love and your providence. So God, as we come before you know with our tithes and our offerings, help us to help the poor, those without food and clothes. Help us to tell others the good news of Christ with our partners downtown, around the world. And Lord, blessing all those gathered here. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. This challenge between uh, God's will and our struggles and our complaints, our drama department put together a video that will help us to see it and reflect about it. Let's watch together. First date, you know, we can we can reschedule it. Oh, yeah, I, I treasure our friendship too. Okay, bye. Why does this always happen to me? Why can't it ever go my way? 
Okay, we'll see you back here in six weeks. It always happens to make bad things. Right now, I'm not gonna be able to drive. Ugh. Why does this always happen? This is so unfair. You gotta be kidding. Great. Thanks. Why can't it ever go my way? Not my will, Father. But thy will be done.